RX. Today on Studio 360. And then I think about everything I've ever done wrong. I think about everything I've ever done wrong. I remember all my faults and relive them in my head. And then at 3 a.m. I can finally go to bed. Mm -hmm. A song we can all relate to. I think about the time in second grade when I threw up on the art table. My teacher was showing us what we were going to draw and I threw up on her picture. I could have... The two funny musicians and musical comedians. Friends who folk. Plus... Did you guys see this movie? Hidden Figures. Great movie. I loved it. That movie is about three black women who save... NASA. Former Daily Show correspondent Asif Manvi is also a playwright and a memoirist and a stand-up. That is how high the bar is set for Hollywood to make a movie starring three black women. They have to save the space program. It's all from our live show, just ahead on Studio 360, right after this. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With One recent Saturday afternoon, we took Studio 360 out of this snug, familiar little studio with nobody but us in it, into the windy, great outdoors of Manhattan, among people like you, listeners, fans, and recorded our show live on the High Line. Hi, everyone. I'm Jocelyn from Studio 360. Welcome to the wind tunnel. (laughs) That is my executive producer welcoming the crowd. Our venue was a huge breezeway, which lived up to its name, but that didn't take away from the fabulousness of the location. The Highline is one of those great only in New York spaces, and it epitomizes the romanticism of the city that I've lived in now for my whole adult life. It's this urban feature that 20 years ago was just an abandoned elevated freight train trestle, this rusty, grungy, overgrown, about-to-be-demolished wreck, and was reimagined and saved by two random neighborhood guys, and now has become this public splendor, a mile and a half of walkable park 30 feet above the hurly-burly of lower Manhattan, overlooking the Hudson River. Like New York in general, the last few decades, revived thanks to vision and will and lots of luck. Broadcasting from the High Line, this improbable new New York icon, reminded me of something E.B. White wrote exactly 70 years ago. He published an essay that contains my single favorite line about the city. New York, E.B. White wrote, can destroy an individual or it can fulfill him, depending a good deal on luck. No one should come to New York to live unless he is willing to be lucky. George Gershwin, ladies and gentlemen. New York City is also a subject, and maybe even we'll find out, kind of a muse for my first guests today. Please, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the stage the funny musicians and musical comedians, Rachel Winitsky and Ned Risley, also known as Friends Who 
folk. Hi. Hi. Wow. How is everybody? Thanks. Here we are. We were actually going to do uh, Rhapsody in Blue, so yeah. now we have it's to sort of readjust. <laughs> yeah, okay, what are we gonna do now? I was gonna sing the ba 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 ba. It's not gonna work anymore, though. Oh, well. That's showbiz. That's for you. showbiz, baby. Um, yeah, so we're gonna play a few songs for you. This first one is about um, the beautiful city of New York and how sometimes you want to escape it. You down when the city makes you blue just take a look around there's magic all around you you can go on a spree to gay old ferry and you don't have to leave nyc just go to lupin 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 quotidien croissant baguette souffle I saw Gerard Depardieu kiss Audrey Tattoo at Panera and Murray Hill. Marion Cotillard has a frequent buyer car at all Ah, où est Je m'appelle Isabelle Hooper. Ah oui, blue is the warmest color. Unless we forget Paris baguette and cosy, cosa. Cosette, there is a castle on a cloud. Les Misérables. And it looks like Lupin, 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 Cordillan, Croissant, Baguette, Soufflé. Lupin, 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 Cordillan. Timothy Chalamet I saw Juliette Binoche Eating brioche at Key and Gaillard in Times Square Oh, mon frère, I wish that you'd been there So if you are sad Light up a cigarette Turn on a melee Pretend you leave in Gay Thank you. Thank you so much. Rachel and Ned, thank you. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. So, you guys have been doing this, performing together for a few years. Mm -hmm. It's true. And, and folk music. I mean, folk music was things oh, was it was done by old people when I was young. It was, so was that, I mean, why were you folk fans? Yes, huge folk fans. We, so I, I, my background is, we are obviously both actors, but my background was also in comedy writing and I'd been doing musical comedy for a while, but we really bonded over our love of Joni Mitchell, mm -hmm. um, both huge Joni Mitchell favorite, fans. Favorite Joni song? Uh, probably ladies of the canyon <laughs> yeah we bond uh, yeah the thing that made us laugh the most i think was that we both knew a lot of the words to ladies of the canyon and kind of those older more obscure or just more folky Joni mitchell songs the the combination of of folks 
folk music's inherent earnestness mm -hmm. with these smutty satirical lyrics that you uh, brilliantly write, that is part of the pleasure, right? Yeah, yeah, I think there's kind of a joke in that we're writing, we're trying to write like folk songs that aesthetically sound like traditional folk songs or like some image of the village in the 60s or something, but then the lyrics reflect the fact that, you know, there's a Chipotle in the West Village now. You know, yeah. like it's a, it's a totally <laughs> Nothing different Nothing but Chipotle. Yeah, right? the exactly. West Village is just No, there's yeah. CVS. Come on. There's right. also Fair. CVS. Of course, of course. <laughs> we don't have a song about CVS, but it's only a matter of time. Yeah, we, we're not, we didn't set out to make fun of folk music. We're huge, we're yeah. genuinely huge fans, and we wanted to write music. We wanted to write comedy and also sing, and we wanted to write music that sounded like real music so that we could... Uh, stretch that muscle that we were both craving uh, and so what happened was friends who folk. <laughs> and, and neither of you are from here, from New York, right? That's true. Do, do, do you think that um, gives you, being from elsewhere and moving here gives you a, a kind of more acute sense of the peculiarities and craziness and wonder and everything else of New York? I mean, definitely growing up in New Jersey, my dream was to move to New York City and when I moved here, for college at NYU, it was like every single thing felt very magical. And there's even a part of me now that when I go to like Times Square, which is obviously like hell on earth, I'm like, it's, I'm here. You <laughs> New made York it to City. Times Square. <laughs> and by the way, it was a different hell on earth back in the day. Let me right. just Now stipulate. it's like Disney hell on earth. <laughs> right, right. Rather than the actual hell on earth. Right. So there you go. <laughs> um, the next song you're going to sing is, is about New York. It right. Is. More specifically, Indeed. it's it's well, an, an icon of New York. Which is to say, Patti LuPone, yes. the, uh, no doubt, Tony Award-winning Broadway uh, actor, uh, known for shows like Gypsy and otherwise. So, uh, you want to sing that, and then sure. we'll talk about sure. it and Patti. Yes, yeah, we'd this love is to. Our, this is a prayer. This is a prayer for Patti. <laughs> Sips a dry martini in the corner. She nods and smiles at the maitre d'. The candlelight flickers across her velvet bowler hat. Who is she? Patty Lapone. Lie, 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 Patty Lapone. Patty Lapone. Just another grueling to show day. She limply gives a wave to an old friend across the dining room. That friend is Victor Garber. She went to Juilliard Group One. She's been in everything from Gypsy to Les Miserables, but most importantly, Anita. What? 
with there seems to have been a miscommunication. Well, yeah, we should have both said law and order. Patty Lapone is famous for law and order. This SPU. feels like this feels like a kind of erasure to say that Patty Lapone biggest. Yeah, you're saying that because it's pride. <laughs> yeah, it's pride, and you're erasing her musical theater past. That's ridiculous. Patty Lapone is a household name because of her guest, her many <laughs> recurring guest spots on Law and Order, okay. Special Victims Unit. <laughs> what What is her character's name? If you're such a okay, super you're gonna fan, you're going to quiz me. Her name is Ruth Miller, ADA. Okay. Ruth Miller. She looks around the bar, it's time to pack it in. She turns to her friend Sean, a 24-year-old gay man. She says, if there's one thing that I have learned in my career, it's call me a fucking cab, I'm Patty LaPone. Come on, everybody. Don't cry for me. That's our song about Patti Lapone. <laughs> so the, the backstory of that, how that got made, did you, like, were you in Joe Allen's one night and saw, well, there's Patti Lapone, we'll write did, a song? I yes. did see, I was in a play and... Uh, um, on Broadway. On Broadway, <laughs> and um, I found myself at Sardi's quite a lot, actually, wow. which I wouldn't have oh. thought was, was You're much younger thing. than you, mu- you must be. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's, yeah, he's in his late 80s. Yes, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Back in the yeah, back in the late seventies, I was in a little show called Paint Your Wagon. No, it's okay. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so I was at Sardi's, and, and one night I saw a lot of Broadway people that I was very impressed by. But then I one night I saw Patti Lapone in a bowler hat, and um, uh, I no. was more starstruck than I I thought I would be. Wait, maybe, wait, 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 wait. Kind of a variation on a bowler, maybe. I don't okay. know. A variation yeah. on yeah. a bowler. Yeah, kind of. And she started singing. No, the she didn't. Cabaret. She didn't no. sing. No, was she, she just, was just singing there with and friends. having like? Was she having a martini? No. Okay. No. Well, there, but there, there's there's an actual backstory. Yeah, I'm there happy was to an learn. inspiration. Yes. So writing your music and your songs, are you more like Paul McCartney and John Lennon? You you both do both, or are you? Is it more of a Keith and Mick thing, where one of you does the music and one of you does the lyrics. We're both Paul McCartney. Yeah. <laughs> We're both We're Ringo. Both Ringo. <laughs> yeah, we um, both we both write music and lyrics. Um, I mean, I'm not a great guitarist, so I think you, Ned often picks up the slack where my musical abilities are lacking, but... Um, we will either come at something from a comedic idea or we'll say, like, we, we really want to have a song that sounds like uh, a We Are the World type song. And then we'll start thinking of, like, what would be really, what would be really subversive in that genre? And we'll, so it sort of depends, but we, we write everything together. Mm-hmm. And what about serious folk music fans, of which there are many, and many of them listen to public radio? Um, uh, <laughs> how do they feel about this travesty? <laughs> I don't know. Thank you for calling us a travesty. <laughs> um, 
we're actually not really sure. I mean, to, to be frank, we don't typically perform outside of comedy venues. We're usually like the anomaly on a stand-up lineup or there's a lot of music comedy in the city happening right now, so we'll do shows with other musical comedians. But I would hope that, actu that actual folk fans would see that what we're doing is an homage and not... Uh, we're not making fun of folk music, uh, yeah. and I'd hope that they would have some sort of appreciation totally. for it. Totally. Yeah, yes. my parents are both big folk fans, and they they like me. Um, <laughs> but, um, but, no, I'm just kidding. Are you no, sure? The, every once in a while, my mom will be like, you know, like, folk music, we, we, we were really doing stuff, too. Like, she, like, wants to check in and really make sure that I'm not I'm not just making this is, fun. Oh, yeah. This is a, that's a show. You yeah. and your parents. Yeah. I mean. yeah. No, it's, I mean, like, I grew up going like to the Philadelphia Folk Festival and listening to The Roaches and um, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young and like all yeah, those, same. you know, so. Folk-ish. Folk-ish, but. <laughs> yeah, I like we, Phil Oaks. That's a real folk Phil Oaks, right? we love Phil. Oh, we talk Does about Phil count? Oaks all the time. Yeah. <laughs> we haven't been able to crack a Phil Oaks song. No, it's, it's true. It's because we don't play a little piano. You're going to sing one more, yet another song, yes. right? Yet another. And, we, and this is what? Um, this is a song that we wrote that's about self-care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, so kind of um, tangentially New York-related. Friends who poke. Life can be hard, sometimes you need to unwind. I have an end-of-day routine to clear my mind. I turn off the lights, silence my phone, because this is the time when I am finally alone. I lay down and close about everything I've ever done wrong. I think about everything I've ever done wrong. I remember all my faults and relive them in my head. And then at 3 a.m. I can finally go to bed. Mm -hmm. Ned, what do you think about it? I'd love it? to I... tell you. Thank you. I think about the time in second grade when I threw up on the art table. Mm. My teacher was showing us what we were going to draw, and I threw up on her picture. I could have vomited on the floor, but I threw up on her picture instead. Mrs. Kajiano, I'm so sorry about your picture. I think about it every night. It keeps me awake. I lay down and close my eyes. And then I think about everything I've ever done wrong. I think about everything I've ever done wrong. I start at the beginning and go year by year, and at 4 a.m. I pass out. Mm -hmm. Rachel, do you want to tell yes. us? Okay. I think about the time a girl in high school told everyone that she thought I was gay, and the reason she gave was that I was too obsessed with Sandra Bullock in the Two weeks notice. That's not something I did wrong. No, that is something she did wrong. But I'm the one who thinks about it every single night. I think about all the things I can't control and how I could have controlled them. I think about all the things that can't be fixed and I try to fix them by thinking about them really hard. I Scroll through Twitter for seven hours and at 6 a.m. I go to work. 
At work I still feel really bad. I think about the time I peed myself at camp. I think about the time I slept with a guy who I knew was bad, but I fucked him for a year. I think about how I'm not the only one in the world, and then I feel bad because the world is bad. I think about how climate change is real. I think about the military industrial complex. I think about the fact that 53% of white women voted for Trump. No! I think about the future when I am dead, and I wonder will worms eat my eyes? Will worms eat my eyes? Will worms eat my eyes? Thank you. Thank you so much. Rachel Winitsky, Ned Risley, thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Friends who vote, everyone. Coming up on our live New York show. I did the trifecta of brown people roles, which is cab driver, deli owner, and terrified witness, all on Law and Order. How Asif Manvi went from tiny TV roles to a star-making TV role by way of the theater. And that's what really caused me then to say, well, I'm going to have to write my own stuff and, and just create my own content. That's next on Studio 360. Back on the High Line, my next guest was Asif Manvi, who is super multifaceted. He is a comic and dramatic actor on stage and screen, a screenwriter, a playwright, a memoirist, and a performer for a decade on The Daily Show where, as I told the live audience, his titles included Senior Muslim Correspondent, Chief Brown Correspondent, and Senior Foreign-Looking Correspondent. He joined me on stage for a chat, but first, he did a short stand-up set. Hello! How are you? Nice to see you. Such attractive white people here in the audience. My parents would be so proud of me right now. Um, my name is Asif Mambi. I, um, I, uh, you know, I, I uh, am an actor, like uh, Kurt said. I uh, uh, do comedy. I do, and, and, and I came up uh, in the 80s uh, when there weren't a lot of brown actors uh, in the business here. Uh, you know, uh, there were, there, when I came when I was growing up, there were only two... Uh, brown uh, actors of color that were uh, known, uh, and that was uh, uh, Sidney Poitier and Omar Sharif. That was it. And my parents told me if I wanted to be an actor as, when I was a young kid, I was going to have to wait till one of them died, <laughs> and then there might be room for me. But uh, but things have changed now, and I'm glad about that. We have much more diversity. When I was growing up, there was only one brown actor. Now we have eight. So. <laughs> It's, it's really good. But I will say one thing. Uh, today in my career, I, I spend a lot of time out on the West Coast, and I go to L.A., and I will sometimes be pitching uh, stories, uh, movies, TV shows to network and studio executives. And I do find one thing to be true still, even now, with all the diversity that we have, that when you're telling a story uh, or making a movie or pitching a story about, a, about a people of color, it has to be like the worst thing that ever happened to them 
or the greatest thing that ever happened to them. It's got to be like he was a free man, then he was sold into slavery, but then he got on a game show and he won a million dollars and he had a girlfriend who went into a coma, but it's okay because she married him. It's 12 years of slumdog big sick. Like it's got to be like that movie, right? I mean, here's an example. I'll give you this. Uh, there was a movie a few years ago called Hidden Figures. Did you guys see this movie? Hidden Figures, great movie, I loved it. That movie is about three black women who save NASA. <laughs> that is how high the bar is set for Hollywood to make a movie starring three black women. They have to save the space program. <laughs> Conversely, you have this movie Joy. Did you see this movie Joy? White people can make a movie about anything. There's a movie called Joy starring Jennifer Lawrence. That movie is about a white woman who invents a mop. That is the whole plot of that movie. I am not kidding you. That is the plot of that movie. Can you imagine if I pitched that movie as a Muslim woman? Can you imagine that? Her name is Fatima and she invents a mop. I'm sorry, she, she, she does what? She invents a mop. Oh, okay. Uh, oh, oh, I get it. Is it a uh, is it a terrorist mop? No, no. It's 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 just it's just a mop. Uh, she's oh oh oh. I see. There, there's an honor killing. There's an honor killing, and she has to beat off her oppressors with the mop. No, no. She had a shitty mop, and she invented a better one. That is the plot of that movie. Yeah, we're, we're, not, we're not making that, no. But you bring me that terrorist mop script and I will get Daniel Day-Lewis to do the voice right now. That's how that would go. All right, guys, thank you very much. Thanks a lot. So, Asif, when you got this Daily Show job yeah. uh, in 2006, you were not a comedian. You were not, you claim, a big news hound. Um, and, they, and, and they hired you instantly, on the spot, in a way that never happens. Right. Um, well, there were sexual favors that were given out, but so... Very quickly. Uh, no, uh, yeah, it was a bizarre thing. Uh, I think at that time, John uh, was specifically looking for somebody... This is John somebody. Stewart. John Stewart, sorry, yeah. Um, uh, John Stewart was specifically looking for somebody who was, uh, who was not a comedian, or didn't come from the world of comedy. Uh, I, I did do comedy, I, I'd always done comedy. I did improv and sketch, and I'd even uh, done stand-up in the early days. Oh, really? Oh. Um, and then, um, but he was looking for somebody who uh, was more of an actor, and somebody who just, uh, uh, you know, um, had been on Broadway. No, he, he didn't care about that. But uh, although that was, when I first met him, that was the first thing I said to him, you know, because I auditioned for him. I was such a cocky guy. Because I went in there and I was sort of like, oh, I'm a real actor. Like, I've done stage and things. And I was like, I'm not doing this comedy, like, show, you know? Like, and so um, I went in and he said, oh, he didn't know me. And he said, have you ever performed in front of a live audience before? Because we taped in front of a live audience. And I just remember being like super snarky and looking at him and just being like, uh, dude, I've, I've been on Broadway. And then he was like, oh, okay, Mr. Broadway. All right, here we go. Okay, smarty pants. So then, uh, but then he hired me like right away. So the, the, the takeaway is 
to be a big jerk when you're going for important yeah, auditions. Like, like clearly, like the, the bigger jerk you are, the more likely you are to get the job. Apparently. But, but before that, uh, back in the 1990s, when you were this actor, dramatic actor, and, yeah. and looking for parts, what, what, what kind of roles did they give you? Did you get? Um, a lot of cab drivers. I, I did the trifecta of brown people roles, which is cab driver, um, deli owner, and terrified witness. So all on Law & Order, so... Um, Another theme! Uh, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I was getting a lot of, like, you know, the typical sort of... I mean, like I said in my, in my thing earlier, like I said, there were, only, there were only a handful of us in the business in the 90s. And, when and I Poitier got, wasn't really working that much. At what's that? that? Sidney Poitier wasn't really working He wasn't, he was... <laughs> right, we went up for the same parts, <laughs> so it was fine. Um, but he... Uh, but, but, you know, there was me and, like, I think two or three other brown actors, and, and people just weren't writing the roles, and that's what really uh, caused me then to say, well, I'm going to have to write my own stuff and, and just create my own content. And, and, and voila, there we are in 1999, uh, you, you write and star in a one-man show uh, called Sakina's Restaurant. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Um, uh, you guys are about about exactly how many people saw that show. So it's like, in its original uh, incarnation. But, but <laughs> seriously, uh, was that a, a a long slog, or did you just say, "By God, I'm going to do this"? I wrote it, and suddenly you had a producer, and it was. Uh, no, it was a long slog. It was uh, nobody had ever done a show at that time. This was 1998, earlier when I wrote it. So, and at that point, no one had ever uh, done a show on the mainstream like American stage in New York, or you know where. It was, a, it was written by a South Asian, and it was about a South Asian family. And a lot of uh, theaters in the city uh, just basically told me, yeah, nobody's going to come see this play. Like, it's a one-man play about a South Asian family. Like, there's no audience for this, you know? Um, and so I got rejected by everyone. And then it was, uh, I was studying with a, a guy named Wynne Handman. Famous who, acting Famous teacher. acting teacher. And at that time, the artistic director of the American Place Theater. And Wynne was the only person... Uh, who, who believed in me and said, uh, I'm going to give you a shot at my, at my theater and we'll, we'll put on your show and we'll run it for two weeks and then and we'll see how it goes. And so we opened and uh, ran for two weeks and the New York Times came, reviewed it. We got this ridiculous love letter in the New York Times, which... May I, I quote I, from it? Oh, all right. Fair enough. Uh, it, it, it's, it starts, it says, it, describing the first scene, it's, fu it's funny and endearing, but that only gives you a hint of what Asif Manvi can do and does in this wonderful one-man show. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you. Well, um, so, uh, I should know because I have it framed, but I, no, um, no I, I was, we got this amazing review and it was really uh, Surprising and, and amazing, and, and it was, and then we ended up running for six months right. at the American Place Theater, and so um, uh, that's you know what it, uh, was my meteoric rise to the middle. I mean, that was it? And 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 six, seven years later, you get the Daily Show job, but yeah. but did, was your career was that a big career change moment? Oh yeah, it was. Uh, it it changed my life. Uh, two things happened. A, a the show was so much part of the zeitgeist that it became instantly, it was, it, you know, it was a cultural phenomenon. So instantly you were like associated with that show and, and people know who you are and all that. On the other side, uh, I, I was relatively, uh, 
you know, my, my sort of Muslim identity, my sort of brown identity, uh, my cultural identity was kind of something that I never really talked about. And suddenly I was on the show talking about that. And what I found really amazing was that for a lot of people, and this was post 9-11, it was 2006, right? We were in Iraq, America was at war, you know. And for a lot of brown people in the city, a lot of Muslims, a lot of immigrants, a lot of people like that, suddenly like seeing a brown face on a satirical news show like that talking about their experience and speaking from it uh, about it from the place of like being on that fence between the inside and the outside of the culture that was incredibly powerful to them which i had no you know i had no uh, i had a somewhat to do with i had like really really funny Com Ivy League educated comedy writers who were writing stuff for me and then we were also, we do improv and we do all that, but like the fact is like I sort of got, then I started getting hugs from like, you know cab drivers and like just brown people on the street would come up to me and, and like want me to meet their daughter or hug me, you know In Sakina's restaurant you have a revival, a successful revival yeah. of last year. I'm wondering how it played differently or if you revised it 1999 is, 2018 is very different than 1999. 1999, Donald Trump, he wasn't that, even that, a reality right. TV guy. He was on, it wasn't a Donald former Trump reality Donald Trump was a liar, guy. but we just didn't care yeah. back so, then. So have, given what's happened in the last 20 years, did, did the show play differently? Did you, did you tweak it? No, we didn't tweak it. Um, we, we actually, you know, Audible came to me and asked me if I wanted to revive the show. Initially, I said no because I felt like it was dated and I felt like it was set in a period uh, that America is no longer in. And, and they actually, uh, they suggested to me, like, I not update, because I thought, oh, maybe I'm going to update it and I'm going to, like, really try to have to, you know, put iPhones in the show and things. And, and they said, no, just keep it, set it in the period that it was in, which was, like, the mid to late 90s, and let's just do it that way. And so we did it, and I found that what was amazing was that I was different because I'm 20 years older, but the audience, what I found really interesting was the audience watched the play almost as a period piece now, and there was a kind of nostalgia for an America that we don't live in anymore where the story of immigrants was about identity and not about like being having their children locked up in cages. You know what I mean? And so it feels like today... One of the ways, what Sakina's Restaurant did, I think, then and even more so today was when you want to dehumanize people, what you do is you politicize them, right? So the best way to dehumanize a group is to make them political. And that's happening all the time in our culture right now uh, across the board, Muslims, Mexicans, whatever it is. And our administration is very good at doing that. And so what Sakina's did and what theater, I think, ultimately can do uh, better than, than most things is he, tell human stories and humanize that immigrant experience. And so I found that for the audience, that humanizing of the immigrant experience was not just for laughs anymore. It was almost like, weirdly enough, even though the show is still funny, the play became a tragedy <laughs> rather than a comedy in today's setting. So you've come full circle. Uh, you began as a dramatic actor, as a young man. You are now uh, about to star in a new program on the CBS television network yep. uh, that from its title, at least, doesn't sound like a comedy. It's called Evil. Yo, I, I, I'm so excited because I, like you said, I've, I've always done 
dramatic work and comedic work. And, and even when I was on The Daily Show, I got to go off and do, you know, I did a, a play called Disgraced by um, Pakistani-American writer Ayad Akhtar. That you were great in it, by the way. Oh, thanks. May I, I say. And, and I was, uh, and that was uh, a very dramatic role. So I always got to do that. And so this is an opportunity that I'm really excited about to do this show called Evil, which is a kind of X-Files-y type of show about three people who are um, investigating paranormal activity and uh, and, and demonic possession and miracles and things like that. And, uh, and it sort of examines the idea of science and faith. Like it kind of uh, talks, you know, what is science? What is faith? What do we believe? What do, you know, which is kind of in our culture at this point as well. You know, this uh, idea of I'll what say, is true and what is not true. I'll, I'll say, um, and you play a carpenter. I was just super excited to play, play a guy named Ben. His name is Ben. And he gets to wear a plaid shirt and work boots and drive a pickup truck, which historically has been has been a role reserved for like a white guy. So I'm I'm super excited to play like that kind of character because my whole career like I was either in a suit or in a doctor's lab coat, you know. And so this is complete departure from that. And uh, and, and are it's you really are you fun. are you funny sometimes? Are you the yeah, skeptic? There's a, there's, yes, yeah. there's an element of humor. Uh, I think they hired me for, for elements of that, and uh, and I'm 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 a skeptic. I'm I'm the guy who's sort of like the one who figures out why it's not a demonic possession right. or why you know. And I'm the sort of the the kind of one who's like I'm a little bit of a contractor, carpenter, MacGyver type guy who sort of is like it's not a ghost, it's your air conditioning unit. <laughs> right. You know? So you're neither Scully nor Mulder. You're you're the third right, person. I'm the third one. Yes, uh, but it's great. It's got a great cast. Uh, Mike Coulter, who uh, was Luke Cage on Netflix uh, in, in those shows, and uh, Katya Herbers, who you know from Westworld and other things, and then Michael Emerson, who is uh, from Lost and Person of Interest, and it's great. It's yeah. it's a it's a, and CBS. That must, and I mean, it's CBS, and right? so uh, the Tiffany it, Network. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so all your grandparents will be watching. Um, Asif <laughs> Mandi, uh, I've been a fan in all of your incarnations over these years. Uh, thanks so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Asif Mandi. Coming up next. You shouldn't have to tell me. Yola Tengo plays live on the High Line. Sometimes the way we feel. All the way we feel, we feel. That's next on Studio 360. Pretty bad. Studio 360. Our final guest for our live show on the High Line was a band totally identified with New York City. Although they got together and still rehearse right across the river in New Jersey. Georgia Hubley, Ira Kaplan, and James McNew, Yola Tengo, who started off with this song, Double Dare, from their 1993 album, Painful.
Georgia, James, welcome back to Studio 360. Thanks. Nice to be back. Um, Thanks for having us. In, in the outdoor, windy, uh, summer of Woodstock 50 years later version of the show. Um, you hardly notice it. Good. Um, one of the things you do famously and astonishingly is, is uh, audience members will say, oh, how, can you play that? And you play it successfully. D does that work? I mean, with all of your own songs? I mean, if, I mean, there must be like some obscure song you've recorded and like, oh, Demon from uh, that the soundtrack. Or is, your, is your savantism such that you can always play? <laughs> I think that like, as long as they don't really have any expectations that we'll play it well, then we can kind of, sure, we'll take a shot at it. That's a key to life. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you said, you what you were describing, we do this thing, uh, there's a fantastic radio station in Jersey City, WFMU, and every, uh, every hey, year... Hey, listener-supported <laughs> non-commercial station. 
And we go, we ra help raise money for them every year by playing, attempting to play what people request of us. And I would agree with you that we do it successfully. But one of the reasons I think it's successful is because kind of like a different version of today, we found a context where playing it really, really badly does not make it unsuccessful. And, you know, we're doing the best we can and it's this kind of performance art or lack of art. And <laughs> I do think it's successful, but we are, you, you don't want to hear those songs a second time. You barely want to hear them once. It's a party trick? It's a parlor it's, trick. No. Um, speaking of New Jersey uh, and that station, and as I said in the introduction, where you, where you germinated, um, you can practically see across the river uh, to where you played your first show and many shows thereafter, right? The W Hotel, that's correct. It's right there. Yeah. Maxwell's Hobo. Good times. That, yeah. Upside down W. Yeah. Uh, you still remember that? I mean, oh, God, yeah. Yeah? I remember the first. Scary? Show. Yeah, terrifying. Terrifying. It was 1984, right? Yeah. I mean, indie rock was not even like a, I don't think, a phrase yet. What were you? What, what did you, people think of you as? New wave? Late new wave? Yeah. No, what? <laughs> Post-punk, math rock. I don't know. <laughs> uh, we, you know, we, we were so interdirected that the idea that people were thinking of us was almost inconceivable. You know, the, the show we did was for our friends. Uh, and we played a party, and then it was it, just everything we did were such baby steps, and the idea that anybody was listening to us, that did not sink in for forever. Yeah. But now it sunk in, I assume, no? I, well, it, it, I think it's so ingrained that I think we're all pretty capable of forgetting about it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the things about making a record is you really want to not worry about how people are going to react and what the feeling's going to be. And I think we got so good at remembering how nobody reacted that it's very easy to find that spot within again. Um, one of the things you did at Maxwell's and have continued, I believe, in the afterlife, uh, Maxwell's no longer exists, uh, uh, is your Hanukkah residency, which takes place once a year. Um, I explain what that is. Georgia. Okay. Um, we play all eight nights of Hanukkah, and every night we'll have a different uh, musical guest or a, and usually a comedian. And then um, we don't announce who anyone is playing. We don't announce who's playing, so it's but, always but, a surprise. And like David Byrne and Amy Poehler and famous. And that's some great guests. people. Yeah. Amazing In people. Fact. And then we give all the money away to charity. Oh, that's right. Right here, if you look at the guitar. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. This, it says uh, this guitar kills fascists. This very guitar uh, with the pink tape there, that is uh, covering up or attempting to mitigate the damage caused to it last December when uh, Graham Nash uh, trashed our guitar. <laughs> really? That's, that's a, so that goes directly to Cleveland and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame eventually. It, it's, we have it on loan today, uh, okay, yes. Good, good. Um, will you play uh, one more song? Yeah, sure. What, what will it be? Yes, we will, Kurt. This is gonna be a song from the There's a Riot Going On album called uh, Shades of Blue. One, two, three, four. 
my mood Facing my feelings for life without you But orange or yellow Doesn't matter what's the hill Whenever I see them They're all shades of Staying indoors cause you're not around Indigo violet Doesn't matter what's the hill Whenever I see them They're all shades of And that's it for this week's special live show. Thanks to Jason Gambrell, Faith Smith, and Slate. This episode was produced by Studio 360's Lauren Hansen. And Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our production team is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Andrew Adam Newman. Sandra Lopez-Monsalve. Tommy Bazarian. Evan Chung. Morgan Flannery. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. And I'm Kurt Anderson. The bigger jerk you are, the more likely you are to get the job. Thank you, and thanks for listening. PRI, Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360. Poison them, drown them, bash them in the head. I just was in this out-of-body experience when I saw Cruella DeVille. Finding your true self in a Disney villain. I don't care how you kill the little beast, but do it! And do it now! I just thought, that, that's what I want to be. That is the life I want to live. That's next time on Studio 360.